0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello! Welcome to the May the Fox Be With You edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. It is Star Wars week. Yep. 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 Star Wars is a major movie franchise. We're going to talk
1: a little <laughs> bit about that. It's like how an alien who just landed in New York from Mars, or a major movie franchise. <laughs> Tolkien,
2: ta- like, I just checked. I can tell of this. I checked Skywalker the Wikipedia <laughs> today.
1: It tells me. Well, Anyways. I mean,
0: I mean, ta- talking talking of an alien, um, Alien is also a major movie franchise. It is also that's true. And and now the. Star Wars franchise and the
1: Alien franchise are going to be merged. It's going to be mar- well married. I, they're going to be cousins. I don't think. Although that would be interesting if you yes. actually put Luke Skywalker and like one of the actual the aliens, aliens together.
2: Yeah, I don't think who, that would
1: end well. Who wins the yeah. force? I mean, we've <laughs> had Alien versus Predator, now
0: we can have Alien versus Darth Vader. I don't see why not.
1: Absolutely. Um,
0: we are going to talk about that. We are going to talk about. Apple, which also made an acquisition this week, not quite as big as the one that Disney made, but an interesting one, all the same, and by popular demand, and by popular demand I mean because Anna insisted that we had to, (laughs) we are going to talk about Bitcoin. Um, And Tango. Yes. There's going going to be talk about Bitcoin, and specifically about Bitcoin futures, which Mm. have now emerged on the scene and may or may not have made any difference to anything um but let's start with the fifth, either 52 or 66 depending on how you're counting billion dollar acquisition of most of 21st century fox's assets by the mouse yeah big mouse yes i mean this is this is pocketed mouse those of us who grew up in the shadow of rupert murdoch um it's it's almost impossible to overstate how big of a deal this is. Mm-hmm. This is Rupert selling off substantially all... I mean, he's keeping like $10 billion worth of stuff in, in News core and Rump Fox and stuff, but he's basically selling the vast majority of what he owns. Yeah. And he's selling it to Disney for Disney stock. And that is going to be transformative for him, and for Disney, and for the entertainment industry, and it's kind of, there's a, this is a big deal.
1: Well, okay, so let's let's start with Rupert just, and then we'll move on to how this changes and the entertainment mm-hmm. and Marvel mm-hmm. movies that you'll be able to watch without wanting to tear your hair out. Um, so, is this just a sign that Rupert Murdoch kind of wants to spend the end of his life uh, playing with politics or, you know, essentially in in the news business where he began with it? That's just like how he wants to kind of he wants that to be a swan song or well
0: I mean that was what he was gonna have anyway right it's yeah. like it's not like the alternative was that he wouldn't be able to play with his news brands and his sports brands which are the things which he really loves yeah so um so yeah he he's left with nothing but that which is interesting basically what's happening is that he has one company which is just news basically it's called news corporation he has another company which is um, got a big news operation in fox news and um he's keeping fox news but he's selling most of the rest of the company yeah uh, except for the stuff which obviously wouldn't pass antitrust um and so yeah so he's got also going to wind up with like the fox network and i don't know quite why or what he thinks he's going to do with the fox network but probably that'll get sold at some point
1: Yeah, it
2: seems as though he's essentially selling the less profitable parts of his overall company, I would say. I mean, if you you look in terms of what's really growing, you're not really seeing that in the movie industry.
0: Well, I mean, no, he's selling the profitable parts of the company. The reason why Disney is paying... $66 $66 billion, including debt, for all of these assets is precisely because they're very profitable. He owns The Simpsons. He yeah. owns, you know...
2: Profitable, um, but not necessarily... Well, no. it's a,
1: yeah, it's X-Men. It's things... I mean, there, there are a lot of franchises in there that... He owns, like, Family Guy. These are massively profitable franchises.
2: Right. But if you're looking at that industry as compared to sports and news... I think it may, may make sense for him to focus essentially on what he knows well and where he's seeing more growth.
0: I think, I mean, I don't think that there's more growth in news yeah. than there is in entertainment. I think entertainment quite is, is actually growing, has has the ability to grow more than news does because news by its nature is basically a national industry while entertainment is basically an international industry and you have the ability to export you know, things like the alien movies globally in the way that you don't have the ability to export Fox News globally. What I will say is that precisely because of that, um, the entertainment industry, um, because because of its global nature and also because of the threat of Amazon and Netflix, the need for insane amounts of scale has never been bigger. And for all that everyone thought that 21st Century Fox was big you know, everyone thought that Warner Brothers was big, and both of them are getting taken over because, like, big isn't big enough now. Now you have to be truly enormous.
1: Yeah, and just coming back to the point about whether or not he's selling off the growth businesses, I, I think you know Hulu's a good example here. Hulu, he's selling off his stake in Hulu to Disney, and that is a classic, you know, potential growth business in uh, in entertainment right now. That is one of the ways networks have been trying to go up against Netflix, um and so that's now going to be in Disney's hands, and they're going to have an opportunity to either. Uh, shutter it in favor of their own streaming platform or grow it it's kind of up to them and people are a bit worried but so i think yeah what what
0: are they worried about
1: why would either of those be a bad thing shuttering hulu yeah people like hulu (laughs) oh so it's
0: just like people who have hulu are worried Uh, they might not be as good
1: so there's also um i mean you know you can get deeper into it so the nice thing about hulu is that it wasn't what people call a walled garden they kind of had content from everybody or a lot of different places coming in um it wasn't necessarily just a plat like whereas netflix is more becoming a platform for next netflix's original productions well that's because disney
0: Um, is pulling all of its stuff
1: from netflix yeah and so
2: and it would seem that this move means that's going to happen quite a bit more so And, and i think netflix knows that i mean that's why netflix has been moving towards creating more and more of its own content right what we are
0: what we are not going to have it seems quite clear is a kind of spotify for tv where you get everything no
1: exactly you have hulu was sort of a a cooperative project between a bunch of different players in the industry so you had shows coming from a bunch of different places as well as programming like the handmaiden's tale that was original and lots of people liked prestige programming Um, whereas now it seems like now, it seems like either Disney is going to use it as a platform for itself or, again, they already have a streaming platform. They've actually kind of kickstarted, even though it's not as popular as other things. Um and so maybe they'll just focus their resources there. So that's uh, again. That's uh, but
0: yeah, I feel like this whole Hulu thing is a si- is a sideshow, really. Well, like, if what, you're
1: talking what, about a growth, a potential growth business, entertaining streaming is part of that. But,
2: but so, streaming in general, I think maybe we can then pivot to talking about again why this makes sense for Disney to do this, right? Because yeah.
0: it gives them. Because Disney is very good in movies. I mean, amazing in movies because they acquired three major acquisitions since Bob Iger took over. They acquired. Marvel they acquired Pixar and they acquired Lucasfilm and between those three they have just dominated the the big movie space to to like a point at which no one else even comes close um what they don't really have is all of the other stuff which people like to watch on TV which is basically TV shows and that's what they're getting with Fox because Fox has the kind of TV shows that people really really love to see and Man cannot live on movies alone.
1: Yeah. I mean, they're also just getting full control over the Marvel franchise at this point, which is just, I mean, that's so much bread and butter for them already. Um, Previously, there's this famous issue that Marvel, like the Avengers part of the Marvel universe existed with Disney. And then you had the X-Men and Spider-Man actually over with Fox. Um, and Fox was really bad at making Marvel movies. And so there was this... A lot of comic book nerds have just been wishing for a grand, like, kind of reuniting of, of, of all the different characters, which is now going to happen. Um, but it also just gives them the ability to keep spinning out movies. It gives them the ability to just keep extending this franchise without tiring out their ideas. And I, I actually don't think you can underestimate the value of just that one acquisition there. Yeah. Along with... I and mean, But I think the really
0: big yeah. part of the deal. I mean, Hulu and movies and everything notwithstanding, the really big part of the deal is that Disney for all of its size and for all of its global brand recognition actually doesn't have much of an entertainment business internationally. And Star TV especially in India Mm -hmm. is the crown jewel that virtually everyone wanted, because India is this insane growth market. Star TV is by far like the biggest and most profitable part of the sort of media space in India. And now with Star and also with Sky, which they're going to be acquiring in Europe, um, they suddenly become, you know, as powerful in Europe and India as they are in The US, where right now they have ABC and ABC is, you know, big and important, so that's fine, but they don't have anything like that in Europe or India, and now they do.
2: I would also say, if you look at the deal itself, the acquisition, about a third of the value were those regional sports networks. And I think that's important if you look at Disney already having ESPN, that this could be part of them really trying to create more dominance in sports, which gives them a lot more leverage with the networks, at the same time that they can gain more leverage with the other streaming services now because they control so much of the content.
0: Because, yeah, uh, that's the next big thing. In streaming, which hasn't really arrived yet, but it will be arriving very, very soon, is live. And, and when I say live, I mean sports. Like, yeah. No one is interested in seeing sports like after they play. The, the whole point of sports is it needs to be live, and no one's really, really cracked that on the over-the-top streaming services yet.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I mean, I I, well, I would say, having come from the Midwest, that people do like watching sports clips quite a bit after they've been played. But yes, I think that live sports, you really that that's where also the ad dollars are. Yeah. So again, it makes sense for Disney to try to create more control over that. Again, just because it also gives them a lot of leverage in the money they can get from networks. So or from Digital.
1: I want to bring up a vague philosophical question that you guys can brush aside if you want, but it's the thing about this deal that I'm kind of dwelling on, which is I don't think there's anything, I don't think anybody will argue this deal makes Disney a monopoly in any me, in, in any technical sense of the word over entertainment. There's a lot of entertainment out there. I don't know what share of the movie market their films will now take up exactly. Um, but there's they don't they they don't control more than half the box office. Um, at or the same, even more than a quarter. Yeah, when,
0: I, when I was yeah. growing up, my my working definition of a monopoly, which I got from my grandfather, who was on the Monopolies and Mergers Commission of the of the United Kingdom, was
1: a, when you have more than twenty five percent of a yeah. industry. So at the same time, you're staring at some point at a company that owns almost every important franchise film right now you have they have they've consolidated over marvel they have uh they now have you know the star wars series they've avatar which they're going to try and spin out into its own universe and i'm guessing it'll be pretty popular can keep going down the list um you have they have die hard they they have die hard now they they could bring that (laughs) bring that sucker back to life for christmas um so they have a bunch of sports assets now to go along with espn and just at some point. I don't know how to answer this, but does a company like Disney become too powerful? Even though it, you know, in terms of just its heft as this entertainment conglomerate, even though it technically doesn't have a a uh, monopoly in any one
0: part of it. My feeling about this is that we, right now, for reasons which I, for one, certainly don't really understand, we have reached a point in the entertainment, in the history of entertainment, where franchises are way more important than they've ever been in the past. Mm -hmm. And I just don't believe that's going to last forever. I think right oh, now, I, I think right now, like the franchises seem like unbeatable and huge. But it was never that way in the past, and I doubt it will be that way
1: going on into the
2: future. So, I think right I don't now, know. As, as, I disagree. Yeah, as entertainment becomes more global, yeah. I, I really think that actually franchises are going to play a bigger role.
1: Yeah, this is that's that's the thing. One of the reasons franchises have become so important is because you need instant recognition in China. You need uh, that's that's where sequels come in. I mean, they work in America, but worldwide you need that sort of ability to sell something and you know by just glancing at a poster it's like oh yeah i recognize those characters
0: but what's the biggest disney movie of the year like up until this week when
1: Star Wars comes out is coco which is not a franchise pixar has always been sort of an exception there right and i feel like in a way it's the exception that proves the rule and to some extent, they get away with it because they are Pixar and they just have such a strong brand with parents as the place that makes movies you can take your kid to that you're not going to want to die sitting there watching. So that's um, although so, I mean, that's that's
2: <laughs> yeah, And just last point. I mean, I do think what you're saying about a monopoly is concerning more in what it could do to the other streaming services, because I think right now we think of Netflix as kind of being the preeminent streaming service. But Netflix is in a fairly weak position in comparison to a Disney because Netflix has to take on a lot of debt in order to generate this new content. Whereas Disney has a lot more cash that they, so they have a lot more runway that they can use in order to also kind of create a lot of content at the same time that they can pull content out of Netflix.
1: Yeah. That's that's actually a really interesting point because for a long time when we've talked about monopolies and antitrust, it's always about what we call horizontal mergers where things like actually this deal for the most part where a movie studio buys another movie studio content maker buys content maker you're expanding across the same industry but now people are getting more worried about what we call these uh, vertical mergers where someone in this kind of buys something else in its supply chain in this case uh the content maker buys the streaming platform um and i i think you're right that people actually that is one aspect of it uh that people are more worried about than others wait wait are you saying this uh, what, that people are more worried about the vertical aspect of this deal, which traditionally well, is not. What's the vertical? Oh, because, but, uh, because
0: they create... I feel like that's actually pro-competitive because right now, um, you know, Netflix is is the big gorilla in the space. Amazon is probably the number two. And now we're going to have a genuine competitive number three in terms of these uh, these new streaming services that Disney is going to be launching. And that's good. That's That's more competition. That's not less.
1: It is, but it also happens to be number three that's attached to all of the biggest franchises. on Earth. Right. So I don't know. I, I don't know if it's a settled question. I, I put it out there as a vague philosophical inquiry because I don't have it totally settled in my mind. Because, but...
0: because basically every time there's a merger, you can pretty much count on Jordan to be worried about. <laughs> yeah, I,
1: I am vaguely worried and I, <laughs> I haven't made up my mind about all of it. So I'm relying on you guys to help me sort through my emotional <laughs> responses.
0: And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts, with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more Wondery Means Business. But but let's stay broadly in the world of entertainment, because there's a tiny, in comparison, um, acquisition which got made. While... Disney was spending $52 billion plus $14 billion in acquisition of debt um, to, to get various Fox assets. Apple went along and spent $400 million on buying Shazam, which is... I, I've always liked Shazam, not just because it's an English company. Um, and this is such a small acquisition for Apple that it would normally not even have been public. Like, they would just be... They would put out a statement saying, yeah, we make small acquisitions from time to time and it's not material to earnings. Um, but in fact, for reasons which are kind of interesting, they actually made this one public. They they made a bit, a bit bit of a song and dance about it. And they even revealed how much they
1: were paying. But before we get to the important stuff, though, is just, how many British tech web startups have ever like gotten bought out at that price? like what is the most like is that mixtures am like one of the most successful
0: british i I... I mean that there was that there was that crazy um company which hp bought which turned out to be a complete
1: scam but that wasn't really (laughs) a web company yeah what was it called autonomy or something um so this is so like so apple just bought the jewel of britain's app economy (laughs) (laughs) for barely enough to announce on it for pittance For for pittance
0: well I mean it's interesting that it was the jewel of Britain's app economy back when you could when back when people bought music right yeah the idea was that you would Shazam a song that was playing on the radio yeah uh, and then you'd be like, I really love that song. I sh-. and then there was a simple button where you go, it goes, buy this song. And then you would go along to the iTunes store and you would buy it. Yeah. And that would be, that would generate revenue for Shazam. And Shazam became this sort of billion dollar capitalization and I believe profitable company. It's like 15 years old. This has been around mm-hmm. a long time. Yeah. And then when people stopped buying music, uh, that entire business model basically evaporated. And then people started wondering, how or what the value proposition of Shazam was to its own end.
1: Well, Shazam's interesting, though, because even if it's not making money on its own, it definitely is something that's important to the broader music industry um, because radio isn't dead. Like, that's the key thing. Um, Shazam's provides a ton of data to the music industry and to players in the music industry, labels, whatnot, um, where they use it sort of as an early warning system about what's an emerging hit. Uh they people will start shazamming something regionally and say, hey, this is cropping up a lot um in, you know, Washington Heights in New York, maybe we have another reggaeton hit uh coming up, you know, that sort of thing. Uh and so it's important to have that around if you are in music, if whether or not it can sort of stand and make a profit on its own, which actually makes it a really ideal uh it does seem to make an ideal acquisition for a company like apple where it doesn't need to make a profit off that per se but it just makes its own position as a player in the music industry more powerful and and
0: and this is the really key thing about shazam is that people realized and you know i think some of us only realized this when the acquisition got made we're like oh yeah obviously um that it wasn't actually a company which primarily made money from selling music it or it wasn't even primarily a music discovery company, um, although that was the service that it provided to consumers. Um, It's a consumer data company, and the real value of Shazam is in providing consumer data to people in the music industry, and Apple is a huge player in the music industry and wants to be a huger player in the music industry. And this is the real reason, I think, why... Apple bought Shazam. Remember that, like, the underlying technology, for all that it seemed magical 15 years ago, is pretty much off the shelf stuff right now. If, if what Apple wanted was the ability to recognize what song is playing on the radio, um, they could have built that themselves for tuppence, halfpenny. You know, yeah. the, mm-hmm. the, what they've bought is not that. What they've bought is a data set and Shazam's, Knowledge of not only what the trends are in the music industry from day to day and week to week, but also what its individual users know and love. Because there's nothing which says I really love this song more than pulling out your phone and Shazamming it. So if you if Shazam knows that on a user by user basis, um, especially if that user um, has iTunes or Apple Music installed or is using an iPhone. Um, then that gives Apple an incredible insight into what that individual likes to listen to. And that will be very useful in what is their equivalent of the war against Netflix, which is the war against Spotify. Yes.
2: Yeah. This is also my theory is that. <laughs> Apple has so much cash, as you said, you know, like a quarter of a trillion dollars that honestly, I feel like this acquisition could have just been a screw you to Spotify because it's going to stop the <laughs> like uh, the referrals going from Shazam to Spotify. At this point, it's such a small amount of oh, money. And also because
0: Shazam is English, they can actually use their offshore cash to pay for it. <laughs> yes. Uh, That's uh, so they, funny. You know, it, this is one of the reasons why Skype was such a great acquisition for Microsoft was because it was Estonian. They could use a bunch of offshore cash. It basically didn't affect their profitability at all. Um, but yeah, so Apple buys Shazam because it turns out when Apple launched Apple Music and bought Beats and all of this kind of stuff, they looked at the number of people who listened to music and they looked at the market share of Spotify and they said, well, Spotify has a lot of customers, but it's still just a tiny fraction of the potential addressable audience. And we are Apple. And we can just come in here as Apple, and we own the music industry, and we own the devices that people listen to their music on, and everyone trusts us, and we have this incredible brand which is much stronger than Spotify.
1: And we're going to overtake Spotify in like three weeks. Yep, didn't happen. And totally didn't happen. Yeah, right now I think uh, the numbers are, uh, I mean, Apple Music's not doing badly. I but think it's, there, are, it's, there it's, like
0: 30 million it's subscribers. It's growing more slowly than Spotify, yes, which is, for a young, upstart, like, hugely capitalized business, is like, like how how is this possible?
1: It, it is kind of amazing also that Apple's not growing faster, given that they just have real estate on people's phones. Yeah. I mean, that was the thing that made everyone assume it was just going to come in and Bigfoot Spotify. It was just because it was there as part of the app ecosystem. And, um, and meanwhile,
0: the valuation of Spotify, which was depressed for a long time precisely because people thought it was going to have its lunch eaten by Apple has been going up and up and up. And last time I looked, it was somewhere in the region of $20 billion or something. Oh, really? I mean, they have 60
1: million users and it's still growing. I mean, subscribers, not users, subscribers. And they've gotten to the point also where they think that maybe advertising is going to be a viable business there too, which was kind of surprising. A lot of people thought that was just going to be a thing to tide them over for a while.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're We're definitely going to talk about Spotify in more detail if and when it finally does its direct listing, which is my favorite thing in the stock market. And we get to Nerd out about direct yes. listings. But for the time being, like, I think what we're seeing here is yet another example of Apple actually not being good at software. Yes. And and, <laughs> and and like everyone else seems to be better at software than Apple is. You know, Spotify is better at it, Shazam is better at it. For all that Apple can make really beautiful devices and used to make really beautiful devices operating systems it's it's software has never been all that great and ultimately a streaming service is a piece of software and they just don't have the user experience that people want
2: reboot your credit card with apple card the only credit card designed for iphone it gives you up to three percent daily cash back on every purchase plus apple card has no fees not even hidden ones apply for apple card now in the wallet app on iphone Apple card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com.
0: All right, I I think we've gone what is it? Like coming up for 200 episodes of Slate Money at this point. And I'm not sure we've ever nerded out about backwardation and contango. <laughs> oh, I so, think we have at some point about oil, maybe. I don't know. I but would imagine. In, in yeah. any case, mm-hmm. Anna, because people care about Bitcoin because it's sexy. It's so sexy. This though. is our excuse. I mean, we don't really care about Bitcoin, but no. we care about backwardation. Yes, exactly. So, so I'm all in. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us what's, what's going on in the world of contango.
2: So- Basically, right now, what we're seeing in the the very nascent Bitcoin futures market. So the Bitcoin
0: futures market is like one week. up. Yes. Okay. And it's traded on SIBO, which is this commodities exchange in Chicago. Right. And it, on one level, the fact that it exists is kind of astonishing. And on another level, it really isn't because all that a futures market is, is Two people betting with each other on some state of the world. And it can be pretty much any state of the world. It right. can be like how much rain there is in Australia. And the Bitcoin price is a state of the world, which you can bet on. And now they're betting, betting on the Bitcoin price.
2: Right. But the thing is, when you're usually talking about the futures market, you're talking about you have hedgers and you have speculators. <laughs> yes. Right now, when you're talking about the Bitcoin futures market, it appears that we only have speculators and on top of that it appears that these speculators are not what we refer to as smart money which are like institutional investors who normally if you're dealing in the futures market you're probably not going to be putting on just a kind of unidirectional bet you're going to you're going to be hedging but two things one it's very very difficult to execute a proper hedge if you don't know if you don't know that in the physical market you're going to be able to buy or sell at the same price that you can get in the futures market. Mm-hmm. So, and then on top of that, what we're seeing right now is that we're seeing the curve, we're seeing kind of an upward sloping futures curve.
0: Okay. So, what what is a futures curve?
2: So, that is just simply the price of futures as, as like the future contracts are farther out. And so, the fur- basically, the further
1: the out you go, if it's so upward sloping, the, what, what that out means is, the more, more expensive, expensive it is. So, the so
0: basically, yeah. the Effectively, I know this is oversimplifying a bit, but if you treat the futures market as a prediction, which it is not, and never think of it that way. But what they're saying is the price of Bitcoin next month is higher than the price of Bitcoin today, the price of Bitcoin in three months' time is higher than the price of Bitcoin next month, and so on and so forth. And um and this is where I love derivatives, because this is where it all becomes wonderfully unintuitive. Insofar as like Bitcoin seems to be an asset which is pretty much going up in price rather than down in price, it might be intuitive that like the further out you go in time, the more expensive it's going to be. But in the futures market, that's not how it works, because you're going to explain this arbitrage to us.
2: Well, normally the idea is that as you get closer to expiration, the spot price, so in like the physical market, that's just like where that whatever that commodity is right now we're talking about bitcoin where that's trading should converge with the futures price because if not you're going to create an arbitrage opportunity because if there are different prices and it's the exact same thing essentially you can buy at the cheaper and sell at the higher and normally what would happen is that you would have investors arbitrageurs who would come in and like take advantage of any mispricing and then that'll cause convergence and if If over time you see that you have an expected spot price that is below the futures curve, so the futures curve would have to converge down to meet the spot price, that is what we call contango.
0: So, okay, and just to explain what that means in English, um, you can, if you have, if Bitcoin is trading at $16,000 right now, and then there's a futures contract where you can... Sell it for $20,000 in three months' time, then what you can do is just buy a Bitcoin right now for $16,000, sell your Bitcoin for $20,000 in three months' time, and lock in a $4,000 profit. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's when you really start to get into how actual like Contango works, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. But let's for for all intents and purposes, yeah. Let's just say that you, when you have this type of market, you do have this arbitrage opportunity. And in a normal market, you would have investors come in and take yeah. advantage of that. And then that will remove that opportunity. And, and, to,
0: and to be and, fair, over the course of the one week that it has been trading, <laughs> yes. that that arbitrage opportunity has narrowed yeah. substantially. And it will probably go away quite soon. I guess the interesting question is like, does the existence of a futures market change anything about Bitcoin? And I think the answer is yes. At some level, it does ratify Bitcoin as an asset class.
2: Yes, I would say it. It ratifies it as a currency, not necessarily really an asset class. Really, I
0: I, I, I see it almost okay. I, 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 I well, yeah. I'd say it's a commodity. It ratifies yeah. it as a commodity. commodity. I don't think it ratifies it as a currency because, you know. I mean, we don't need to get into the whole currency or commodity debate, but it is behaving like a commodity, no?
1: The, 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 I mean, just the volatility in it is. Yeah.
2: So it, it, I would say to really call it any type of store of value makes very little sense because of the volatility we're seeing. But people are assigning a value to it. And in theory, it can also be used to buy goods and services. So if you're looking at how it, it's currently working, I, I actually think you potentially now could argue it's working more like a currency than a commodity.
0: So wait, what's the difference and why is it more like a currency?
2: Again, because there's no, A, there's no really underlying value, as opposed to if you have steel or wheat or whatever, you actually have some type of good. And then on top of that, you also have no real store of value because it's so volatile.
0: And you're saying a store of value is something which you get in commodities or in currencies?
2: I would say in... In commodities, or yeah, in, or in in like if you're talking about something like gold, where you actually have some store of value, you can do well, something wait, with okay, it.
0: Okay, wait, hang on. I, I want to um, yeah. unpack this idea of some store of value because I don't entirely understand what you mean. What what does it mean to say that gold has some store of value, but Bitcoin does not?
2: Because currently, gold is an actual physical object okay. that we, as a society, have said you can. Essentially, that the, there is an there is some type of value there, and yes, you could argue why do we assign a certain value to gold? That can be that, that's a whole uh, other I conversation. Say, I say gold
1: is the wrong
0: example to use. Well, here, no, I think it's but... exactly the right example to use because the whole point about Bitcoin is it's meant to be the, digital gold, right? Yeah, but but the what...
2: I, but the idea is that normally you'll see when there's a lot of um, pain in the market or the economy is going down, you'll see people shift towards gold because the idea is that that is going to allow you to. Um, that 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 the price of gold will probably increase because you can actually maintain value there in a way that you might not be able to in currencies. Now, currencies—the only thing that really is a backstop for currencies is the full faith and credit of the issuer. So, at this point, so for all intents and purposes, the a currency of the United States or any other country is really based on nothing more than the fact that we have faith in the country that is issuing it. In the same sense that with Bitcoin people have assigned faith to this kind of decentralized thing but it doesn't in itself have any physical good that you could see as being any backstop to value there's there's nothing there
0: so Uh, yeah I, i i i mean i'm not a bitcoin true believer by any regard but i think i would push back a little bit on that um in the the point of Bitcoin is precisely that we now are entering a world where perhaps um, the faith that we have in institutions is, is eroding, and those institutions would include things like the full faith and credit of a national government, while at the same time... Um, you know, it is entirely rational to have faith in mathematics, right? And that the cryptographic basis for Bitcoin is entirely rational. You you know for a fact that the supply is limited. That there's no government who can like rock up one day and start issuing more of these things.
2: Yeah, I'm going to disagree just a little bit with. I I don't disagree with the idea that I do think. If you are or are not a Bitcoin true believer, if you look, really the only idea of why there would be any value is because, unlike a currency that can you can essentially create as much as you want, Bitcoin has a limit on how much is supposed to be created. And so, I mean, I've heard some people make the argument that buying Bitcoin is like a short on all other world currencies to a certain extent. But I think there are a lot of problems with that. If you think long term, what it would mean if you can create all these other different types of payment mechanisms, like whether Bitcoin, that limited supply, really creates long-term value. But I do somewhat disagree with the idea that it's it's more of a faith in kind of math and algorithms because I think ultimately, I mean, Bitcoin is, I mean, blockchain is, it's an electronic spreadsheet that can't be altered. It, it's nothing much more complicated than that. No, no but so.
0: who said it needs to be complicated? No No one's saying it needs to be complicated. It just needs to be cryptographically secure and it seems to have done
1: a reasonably good job of doing that so i have a few points that Mm -hmm. i want to make um i understand that it's it's not a commodity really at least not a commodity if you think about the classic really utilitarian commodities like oil wheat in that you can't do anything with it on its own that's really what what, when you say a commodity most commodities are a store of value it's because you can burn them you can eat them you can do something with them gold is also we we treat it like a commodity but it's actually a weird one right it's it is sort of have it has this kind of collective delusion aspect of it there are a few things you can do with gold you can use them in electronics obviously there's a jewelry market but there's only so much actual concrete value in a lot of ways it's a financial play um and i think that's one of the reasons we're getting to now that um and gold is also not a great currency again like it is it occupies this weird space between them um in part because of its price swings um and so you know, Bitcoin, which started off as digital gold, that was what it was marketed, has actually done a great job mirroring it. It is this weird collective delusion that people are sort of agreeing to to use. And that is why it has value is because there is just a core group of users that say we are going to hang with this thing until, you know, come what may. We're true believers. We're going to keep transacting in it or try to. Um, At the same time, I think, you know, you guys are also right. It's not a currency yet because, again, I mean, or it's not working as a currency that well because of the volatility and, because people, are not, and be, because people are actually dropping it. You're seeing transaction. The number of actual transactions isn't even really going up as the mm-hmm. value is shooting up. So I think it is this weird um, when you have these things that are sort of this in that weird middle category, it's almost irrelevant to debate you know, whether or not there's actual value there as long as you're just relying on it existing because enough people are attached to it.
2: I agree with you. And I think <laughs> that ultimately it is true that it currently has value because people have assigned value to it. Yeah. But if you're again going back to looking like something like Bitcoin futures, that market, what we're seeing, whether you're going to see the normal activity where you'll actually have price discovery, where you'll actually have People coming in and taking shorts on this, that you'll actually have that type of normal movement that you would have, whether you're talking about a commodity or a currency, I think is unlikely at this point because of the incredible volatility of this asset, as well as the lack of liquidity on a lot of these exchanges that makes the ability to short it very complicated. So Let
1: me me ask a question about that. So this current exchange that's opened up is sort of people are agreeing it's not great. It's sort of... um, there's a lot of technical things people don't love about it. There's another exchange that's going to open up that people CME, yeah. CME that think people think is going to be a little bit better. It's going to use more different data points to determine there the price. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, is that going to help
0: the fact that Wait, I mean, can can I just jump in here because yeah. I I just want to understand what you guys are arguing. No, like, well, you, I, so, I want to Okay, yeah. I want to because what what Anna is saying is this doesn't serve the purpose that Futures contracts normally serve in terms of price discovery or whatever, and what you're saying is, well, maybe it will, or maybe with the new exchange, well, or so, the CML, it, CME, it might. And so, what I'm asking is,
1: like, who cares? Like, is there any particular reason why it should? Well, okay, so let me get to that. The way, the reason I'm asking that is because Anna's saying that right now, that the futures market isn't really. Do isn't operating the way you'd expect expect it to. And if it did operate the way you expected it to, it would probably puncture a little bit of that collective delusion um, that I was talking about. So let's assume you have a functioning... Okay,
0: wait, let me... I want to just go slowly here because because I'm not following this. Um, Okay, so let's say that the futures market is nice and liquid and you have institutional investors going long and short and volatility comes down to a point at which it becomes manageable... Um, now, explain to me simply, like, why would that, in and of itself, puncture the collective delusion and make Bitcoin less valuable?
1: It, it might puncture a little bit of the mania that we have right now, because right now you've, like we talked about earlier, you have a bunch of One Direction speculators who are just piling in. You don't really have a ton of shorting activity on this, which right, so that's good. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's good. I'm saying. Yeah, no, so I'm, I'm saying, could we? So what I'm asking is, if you have a better functioning market, you know, a better functioning exchange is that going to actually convince more pe- more finance people to jump in and start shorting and treating this as something that can be tradable and bring down the price a bit?
2: In a perfect world, yes. Mm-hmm. In the world that currently exists, I think it's unlikely because it is going to be very expensive and difficult to put on shorts. And so I think that the concern with that is that you're only going to have people putting on longs and that is just going to create more mania in the market. And I think you could have... There are so many problems when you're you're creating these exchanges that they like Bitcoin trades 24-7, but you have exchanges that are obviously Closing at four PM. And so you could have these weird and then on these exchanges also have 20% circuit breakers. So if there's a twenty percent volatility movement either way, it's they stop trading. So you could have some weird things that happen on the weekends where you have a movement, then all of a sudden you open up and you can't even trade. There are so many problems because of the volatility that I have a really hard time believing that you're gonna have a ton of smart money coming in and putting on bets.
1: Interesting. Cause last time we talked about this, I was joking that or about how traders are like zombies who just want to eat volatility, and that's why they were lurching and towards And I think you it, might so get might, some. But, I, I yeah. just
2: think the idea that you're going to get enough and enough that seem to have some knowledge about what's going on with this thing to, to inject a little bit of rational thinking, I think at this point is unlikely.
0: Yeah, I, I'd agree with that, especially because the one thing we can agree on, like aside from the commodity currency debate, is that there's no um you know you can't do a discounted cash flow on these things you there's there's no like fundamental value for bitcoin <laughs> and so and so like this idea that like some informed you know person armed with a an army of research analysts can come along and say well i know that the value of a bitcoin should be this is is ridiculous the b- value of a bitcoin is a largely arbitrary number and in many ways for the blockchain to work all you need is just that, that arbitrary number is positive enough that you can keep on mining it and miners can keep on validating transactions. And so long as that happens, it doesn't really matter what the nominal value is in in dollars. All right, let's have a numbers round. Jordan, what's your number?
1: Um, 200 million, which apparently the valuation of a Hubble, which was supposed to be or is supposed to be the Warby Parker of contact lenses, except my... uh, good friend and quartz uh, journalist Alan Griswold just did a piece about how apparently you can get contact lenses from them if you just send a fake prescription written by a fake doctor. Um, so, uh,
0: no, no, Wait, are, you, are you saying that that means it's not worth 200
1: million? I'd say they have some, you know, there's some regulatory <laughs> issues to, to work out. Perhaps they so, are, is, but,
0: is, is, is I mean, is there like a, a medical danger posed by this? Um,
1: I don't know if there's a medical danger, but you're not. I mean, if you're supposed to get a prescription for something from a real doctor and people are fulfilling it without a real prescription from a real doctor, that means maybe the company needs to get its act together. Fair,
2: but like, what's the worst that could happen if you had a contact lens prescription that was wrong?
1: I don't know. It's yeah, still, I'm just saying, I just like, I just like, you know, typically we have had bad, I think Silicon Valley has had some bad experience recently with companies <laughs> that just ignore basic regulations. Yeah,
0: I'm less, I, 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 don't really buy this. I mean, is it a young company which isn't working perfectly? Sure. Is there massive danger of people like using fake prescriptions to buy bootleg contact lenses <laughs> and then like take them out into the street? And I mean, like, it, it, <laughs> I no, like that image though. <laughs> and and yeah, and does this mean that the investors in the company are stupid and it's not worth two hundred million? I mean, no. It's of, of all the things which. I, th- I think it's very easy to point to um, failures and say, well, therefore, the entire company is stupid.
1: I'm not saying the entire company. I'm saying, like, you should, you know, at least make sure that you're fulfilling actual prescriptions. Like, why? This
0: is- but why is that so
1: important? I mean, I like, I mean, I can see
0: there might be a few, like, legal things and that there's a risk that su- the no, I mean- FDA or something <laughs> will, 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 will shut, shut you down. And so it's important to, like, care about that kind of thing. But on a fundamental level... I mean, what, what's
1: the why why is it so important? I I'm not talking about spiritually for the health of the universe. I'm just saying that if you're a company in the business of fulfilling prescriptions, you should do it legally. Yes. <laughs> that should be that should be a high priority. I just it's just maybe this is one of those things where we're just there's some gap between us where I see a problem and you don't. But anyway.
0: I, I think I think I don't know. I think it's a difference in I think the part of the problem is this word prescription, right? Because it's like that's something which in the world to say opiates is an incredibly dangerous thing, which has to be very closely regulated. But in the world
1: of contact lenses? Really? Who cares? I'll I'll, I'll check back on this. You know, (laughs) let's find an expert. (laughs) Um, Anna, what's your
0: number?
2: Uh, 0.2%. That is, so the German uh, GDP per capita would be 0.2% higher if Berlin were not in Germany. I came across a statistic this week, which I thought was very interesting, because if you look at... yeah
0: GDP is like an additive thing. If you add up all of the economic activity in all of the regions of your country, you get to GDP. And economic activity in Berlin can't be negative, can it?
2: Well, if you look at what apparently it... Overall ads, it appears that it might be. And if you look at other cities, like if you took London out, if you took Paris out, it would be something like GDP would be like well, 14% GDP. lower per person. But Berlin is so inefficiently run that it appears to actually be a drag on the overall German economy. Is it, is it
1: drag on gr- the growth rate? That makes sense. If it's if it's like if, – if Berlin is – is regressing currently. Yeah, I can, I can believe that, that it brings sense. the GDP growth rate down.
0: Yeah. I just can't believe that it actually brings it can't GDP be a, down. Would, because there is. I have been to Berlin. The
2: things and they are have actually e- happening. They have
0: economic activity there. That economic activity is counted towards German GDP. I can't understand how, if that economic activity gets taken out, GDP would go
1: up. It, it would be kind of a funny commentary on like the German... Bureaucracy, though, if like it turned out, it was so inefficient that it was just fucking was up the rest of the country. Down, yes. um, I'm, I'm trying to. I don't think. I mean, I, personally, I don't think a place can, unless you're literally looking at a hole in the ground that is sucking other things into it, right. that doesn't make a lot of sense to
2: yeah, me. Yeah, it's a fair. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go back to where I'll, I'll blame the economist for I pulled this number from. It could be that they were referring to GDP growth, which probably makes no sense. But the point of my story is that we we think of Germany as being this incredibly efficient country, but Berlin as a city is actually incredibly inefficient.
0: And I kind of push back on that as well. I I think that what you see with Berlin in contrast to basically every other european capital is that it doesn't have businesses it doesn't have industry there are almost no companies major german companies which are headquartered in berlin and therefore there's not so much gdp which is attribu- attributable to it like the big industry in berlin is government really and that doesn't generate yeah cash um that said i don't think berlin is of a, a an inefficient city. I think it's actually a very efficient city. I think it works well as a city. I think that if you look at the startup scene in Berlin, it's very vibrant. There are more startups in Berlin than there are in virtually any other German city, and that you know just because there aren't big companies there
1: is no reason to like well, shit on Berlin. Well, so I'll tell you why this number does surprise me a little bit because ger- Berlin traditionally has been looked at as um I think what the economist Inrico already referred to as a poor a. a sexy, poor city. I'm
0: a aber sexy. That's the, that's yeah. the slogan of yeah.
1: yeah. Berlin. Poor but sexy. Poor but sexy. So it's not like, you know, this is a place that attracted a lot of artists who didn't want to have to do a ton of work and could just kind of make their, you know, do their paintings or their or their dance performances and hang out. Um, and then, but recently it's sort of been shedding that reputation and, and people have been talking about it as a tech hub. Um, but that's very recent. Well, so I kind of would expect that if anything, you'd be seeing the reverse where finally Berlin was pulling its weight. But... But maybe not. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I mean, tech, the thing about tech as well is that it attracts investment, but it doesn't That's not it necessarily profit huge cash flows, right? Like the biggest tech companies in Berlin, you know, they're bringing in money. They're taking in money in terms of venture capital and that kind of thing. They're doing new rounds. They're not paying out dividends and and cash flowing that much if you're looking at something like SoundCloud you know it's it's a big important company although it's in a little bit of trouble right now but um it's it's not like a major engine of the economy but yeah i i'm going to stick up for berlin i like berlin um <laughs> my, my my i'm going to switch i'm going to do the um the other side of the german coin which is uh three point nine seven, three point nine seven 3.97% to be precise, which is the yield on the Greek 10-year bond, which is the first time it's dropped below 4% <laughs> in like living memory. It's down, get this, it was 7.86% just in February. It's, really? There's, if you wanted to make money in the fixed income market this year,
1: going long Greek bonds <laughs> would have made you a lot of Why money. Why are people so chill about Greece right now?
2: People they, are so, so chill about the eurozone right now, and, and
0: Greece has come <laughs> to weird. an agreement with with its you know international wow. lenders, and it's managed to it's man it's actually is, managed to issue a bond. And this is one of the weird cases where increased supply means higher prices rather than lower prices because it. Makes people feel much more comfortable with the idea that Greek debt is now a thing which you can trade and hone to maturity.
1: Is this also a sign that just they think Europe's going to be able to extend and pretend forever? Actually, yes. yeah, like, yes, yeah. They, they're like, actually, this is yep. a collective delusion we can believe. in. It's another
0: exactly. collective delusion. There yeah. is this. There, there, there was this. A lot of talk around 2011 saying you can't kick the can down the road forever, and and <laughs> turns <assume> out, that, <laughs> turns out, yeah. In fact, you can. So I think that's it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. Um, keep on emailing us. The email is slate.com. Many thanks to Dan Schrader for trying to turn an incoherent Bitcoin conversation into something which you guys might have conceivably made sense of. Um, do listen to El Gabfest in Espanol from my Univision colleague Leon Krauser. That comes out every week, and they have incredible guests on that one, including my other Univision and Fusion colleague Jorge Ramos. Um, so listen to that. Um, he, we, they had Tim Kane on there. You know, um, he's got fluent Spanish, and if you want to just keep up with your Spanish, it's a good way of doing that. So, um, and with that, we will talk to you next week on Sleep Money.